Let's pray, shall we? Father, tonight it's so wonderful to dwell in the love of Jesus and to dwell in the security that comes from his presence. Father, how thrilled we are that our salvation is so Satan-proof, that, Father, he has stopped every single work that you've tried to do, uh, or he's tried to stop it, but actually, Father, you've made our salvation so devil-proof that you haven't yet lost one person who's ever trusted in you. Hallelujah. Father, I want to thank you. Neither has any person who has trusted in you ever been put to shame. Hallelujah. Never have the righteous been seen begging bread, but always living in the abundance that's in Jesus. And Father, I pray tonight in the name of Jesus that we should understand more about the wiles of the devil tonight, and that, Father, understanding these things, we should actually come through to a place where we are effective warriors for Christ. Hallelujah. And where the battle lines are clearly drawn, and where we can advance in victory. Father, tonight in Jesus' name, I pray that your Holy Spirit will control every person in this place. Father, that you'll control my tongue in the name of Jesus. And that, Father, the words of life may pour forth, Father, that we should see the great benefit and the great inheritance we have in the Word of God. Tonight, Father, we only want you uplifted and we only want you glorified. So we ask you to come and take everything about tonight and may it be used only for your glory in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Amen. We come tonight to the third of the third basic course on prophecy. And to recap, in the last two weeks, we've seen two glorious things. First of all, we've seen how powerful a tool prophecy is in the hands of Christians who know what they're doing. For the Bible, uh, critics certainly do not like prophecy. And last week, we saw what prophecy did in the life of every single believer. You remember that we saw all prophecy was divided into two main sections. You have fulfilled prophecy on one hand, and fulfilled prophecy was designed to build up faith. Hallelujah. And designed especially to build up faith in prophecy. And unfulfilled prophecy was designed to build up hope. And we saw last time that hope wasn't something that was uncertain. Hope was a sure fact, as sure as faith is. Only hope is surety about things that are yet to come to pass. And I hope in this meeting we have people now who are dwelling secure in their faith and dwelling secure in their hope because both are part of our inheritance. Hallelujah. Now that's what we've seen so far. Tonight we're going further and to take another step in our path along to details of prophecy. You'll notice, by the way, we haven't yet started dealing with the end times or the battle of Armageddon or the second advent. They'll come later on. We've got to lay a sure foundation. And the third stone that God has given me to lay in our foundation tonight is the subject of false prophets. The reason that I'm dealing with these is you are bound sometime to find someone who's read something that a false prophet has written. Uh, you begin talking to these people about prophecy. You start telling them how it's, absolute, it's completely and absolutely uh, from God, that God actually uses it to show people who he is, to convince them of his omniscience, his omnipotence, 
And you begin saying, you see, prophecy shows that Christianity is correct. And you'll meet someone who will say, well, that's all very well. But you know there have been other people who have prophesied. And there have been other people who not only have prophesied, have prophesied correctly. Now, by the way, when you meet someone like that who throws a criticism of the word or criticism of what you're saying up, don't just leave it and immediately become on the defensive. You should act totally ignorant. And you should say, are there? Oh, who do you mean? Because generally you'll find that some people have heard vaguely that there are such people, but they can't name one. And if you can actually show them um, that, that actually perhaps they don't quite know what they're talking about, you've already won a major victory. Uh, if someone comes up to you, by the way, and says, oh, well, the Bible's full of contradictions, you just uh, say, oh, really, and pick up your Bible rather quizzically, as if you've studied it now for 80 years and you've never found one, and just hand it to them and say, well, show me one you will find that immediately 70% of all Bible critics will drop out of the running at that particular point. By the way, beware, because you might have picked one from the 30% band. <laughs> Praise the Lord. That's why I will be doing a tape later on on con uh, apparent contradictions in the Word of God. They're perfectly easy, and of course they show us something more about the Lord. But generally, if people know and they have read other prophecies, they will name probably one of three people. And so let's have a look at these so that at least you know what the opposition is going to say. Uh, they'll quote probably one of the following three. First of all, they'll quote a woman who is called Mother Shipton. S-H-I-P-T-O-N. And Mother Shipton is a Yorkshire, or was a Yorkshire lass. She's said to have lived in, four, or been born in 1488. And she lived in a place called Knaresborough, where I do understand, I only learnt this this week, there is a bridge, and she said that the third time it falls down is the end of the world. And it's fallen down twice, apparently, and they're waiting for the third, the third time. Now, there's Mother Shipton, so she's the first. The second person is a very, very famous man, indeed, and the one that's in vogue at the moment. If you've never heard of Nostra Nostradamus, who is number two, you really are living quite a sheltered life, and I congratulate you. Uh, Nostradamus is his name, N-O-S-T-R-A-D-A-M-U-S, and Nostradamus, whose dates are, and I'll just put these in, 1503 to 1566. And he was actually of Jewish descent, and he was a Frenchman. And you can actually buy today uh, copies of his prophecies that have been translated into English. Both Mother Shipton and Nostradamus wrote all their prophecies in rhyming couplets. When I give you Mother Shipton's prophecies, or some of them, they all rhyme, except they don't quite, because I don't speak in a Yorkshire accent. Uh, Nostradamus's ones, I have actually used a translation of them, and they don't rhyme. So that's the second. The third person they'll probably quote is Jean Dixon, who is an American lady who is still alive today. And I want to say, before we begin, that these people have prophesied, and sometimes their prophecies have been fulfilled. And so what we have to do tonight is to see how do the prophecies that these people, who I call false prophets, how do their prophecies differ from biblical prophecy? 
Is there a difference? If we are right, there has to be a, a worlds of difference between the two. And so I have chosen three main areas of difference, and I want to uh, use examples from what they've written to show you how their prophecies differ from Bible prophecy. And then we'll get on to biblical prophecies, and we'll actually see how accurate uh, Bible prophecies are. So the three differences are, and I'm taking these in turn. First of all, A, the prophecies that these false prophets give have no plan or overall pattern to them. So I'm going to write here, there's no overall plan. You'll find generally that they just prophesy about a certain event. And there's one event that they prophesy over here, and there's another event over here. There's a social event, there's a scientific event, there's a political event. But the odd thing is that if they come to pass, you don't know what you're left with. All you know is that they've come to pass. You haven't learned anything about God or about salvation or uh, anything that shows an overall plan behind it. All you know is that they have prophesied certain events that seem to have come to pass. May I quote you an example? And I'll begin with Mother Shipton. And this is what she apparently wrote um, sometime after 1500. May I say the majority of people today do doubt whether these were written in 1500. They think they were written last century. But we're going to give her the benefit of the doubt. And here it is. Um, this is just taken from one of her prophecies. A house of glass, or glass, as they would say, a house of glass shall come to pass in merry England, but alas, now that rhymes, doesn't it? I'll read that again in English. A house of glass shall come to pass in merry England, but alas, a war will follow with the work in the land of the bloody Turk, and state and state in fierce strife shall struggle for each other's life. And here you have a prophecy about a house of glass. And everyone who has read these and who supports mothership can immediately say, now here's a prophecy that's come to pass. It's the Crystal Palace. The Crystal Palace was a sort of huge mammoth of a greenhouse which was built in 1851 to hold the Great Exhibition. And apparently Mother Shipton was led to prophesy about this huge greenhouse that was established in the centre of London. Well, say she's right. Well, um, we're left speechless because it doesn't show us anything except that it may have been the Crystal Palace. She goes on, by the way, to say, oh yes, and then there was a war, she says, in the land of the bloody Turk, and that could be the Crimean War, couldn't it? And everyone says, yes, it's the Crimean War, except the Crimean War wasn't held in the land of the bloody Turk, you see? And we have a problem, because there is something that apparently has not come to pass. But what about the House of Glass? Well, we just don't know. Certainly no one in England would think that uh, the Crystal Palace was an event which was tremendously important to warrant a major prophecy from 1500. Let me give you another one of hers, and we'll see the same thing. Gold shall be found, she says, and shown in a land that's now unknown. Fire and water shall wonder do, and England shall admit a Jew. And everyone says, now this was Disraeli. 
Disraeli became prime minister, and Mother Shipton prophesied about Disraeli becoming prime minister. Now, we're not sure that that is meant, but it may be. But say it is. So what? You see, there's no overall plan in that. It doesn't develop a a revelation of God. If you compare that to the Bible, all biblical prophecy is part of a wonderful pattern and part of a developing revelation. Every single prophet spoke about one God, spoke about the character of one God, spoke about a revelation of this tremendous God, spoke about things that would tell you how to be saved, to tell you about his moral standards and how if you break them, you'll be under a curse. But if you agree with them, then you're going to find prosperity in your life. You can take five prophets who lived in different centuries and you'll find that you learn more about the Lord in each one, developing it right through. So if you took all the prophecies that were given about Israel, you would learn a lot about God's views concerning Israel. Or you think about the prophecies connected with the Messiah. They stretch over thousands of years, and yet in Christ we saw all of them come to pass. The prophecies of David came to pass. The prophecies of Isaiah came to pass. The prophecies that Moses gave in Deuteronomy all came to pass in the person of the Lord Jesus. So biblical prophecy makes sense and there's a pattern to it. Non-biblical prophecy is just a one-off event. They prophesy about this. It's rather like my saying, oh, I prophesy that the cross in Chichester will fall down in two years' time. Well, so what? doesn't tell you anything. So that's the first difference. There's no plan. The second difference is this. B. These prophecies from false prophets are very general. Very general and inaccurate. Or lacking precision. Very general and I'm going to put non-specific. In other words, they are spoken in such a way that you can interpret them in many different ways. And you're never quite sure whether it's been fulfilled by a certain event or whether it hasn't. For example, how do we know that this Jew, a Jew, has yet been admitted? Disraeli certainly became prime minister last century, but it doesn't seem to have changed things very much. So are we still waiting for this Jew to be admitted into the land? Well, we're not sure. But it's written in very uncertain terms. Very much, by the way, in contrast to the Bible, which is extremely accurate and extremely specific always. Let me give you an example of that. Nostradamus was said to have prophesied that the French Revolution would occur. He was also said to have prophesied that Hitler would come, and he certainly prophesied that the end of the world would be later on this century. Fine. Well, let's take the passage that actually apparently prophesies the French Revolution. The French Revolution, as you know, was centered in Paris. It was in Paris that all the action was. Had it been the English Revolution, it would have been London that would have been the center. But does Nostradamus mention Paris? No, he doesn't. He mentions a city outside Paris, in fact, not just outside Paris, quite a long way from Paris in Brittany, called Nantes. It's rather like mentioning Bury St. Edmunds or Norwich when you're talking about an English revolution. 
when all the fighting and all the main action has been in Paris. Here's what he says. This is translated roughly from the French. The city's leaders in revolt will in the name of liberty slaughter its inhabitants without regard to age or sex. There will be screams and howls and piteous sights in Nantes. And that's what he says. And there's your French Revolution that's been prophesied. He probably put Nantes in because Paris didn't rhyme at the end of the line. But Nantes happened to actually rhyme. Now, do you see, that's terribly general. And even today, we're not certain whether the French Revolution did fulfill that or whether it didn't. Uh, even the Encyclopedia Britannica actually says about Nostradamus, much controversy, it says, has been caused because his prophecies are so lacking in accuracy and detail. They're so general, you can put any interpretation on them if you like. I think, however, the best example of how general and non-specific these false prophecies are is best given by the center of prophecy in the ancient world. In the ancient world, if you wanted a prophecy for your life, you would go to a place that's still there in Greece called Delphi. D-E-L-P-H-I. And they had a temple established there, and the temple was actually built over some sulfur fume uh, outlets. And what used to happen was there was a high priestess who was dedicated to the god Python, the snake, and what used to happen, she was helped into this temple, and she sat above these sulfurous fumes and gradually went into a frenzy. She breathed them in deeply, gradually went into a trance or frenzy, threw herself around the room, and there were people who followed her around writing notes, everything she said. <laughs> and when she said something that was coherent, they'd write it down rapidly. And one famous king called Croesus, he's a very famous king, he's the one that invented our coinage, a very rich king, and uh, we spell it C-R-O-E-S-U-S, Croesus was the king of a very important kingdom called Lydia. L-Y-D-I-A. Very important kingdom called Lydia. And this king, Croesus of Lydia, he wanted to know, should he fight against Darius the Persian? Here was Darius the Persian causing tremendous agony all around the Mediterranean. And King Croesus had had enough and he decided he was going to fight. But he didn't want to fight a losing battle. So the thing he needed was a prophecy. A prophecy that would say to him, go ahead, you're going to win hands down. So off he went to Delphi. And the woman went into a frenzy. And the prophecy came out. And here is the prophecy that he received. If you move against Darius, said the prophetess, a great kingdom will be destroyed. <laughs> and King Croesus on the basis of that tremendous prophecy, immediately mobilized his army. He marched out of the great kingdom of Lydia and went against the other great kingdom of Persia. And it came to pass. He was totally routed and the whole of his kingdom was destroyed. Do you see what I mean? It's so general, it can have any interpretation. If ever these prophesy about someone coming, it's always a man... But they, and they fill in one or two little details. But really the details are so general that you're not sure when the man has come. Could I contrast that with the Bible? May I show you two passages in the Word of God where instead of generalized prophecy, we get pinpoint accuracy. 
And the first uh, one I'm going to take is in 1 Kings. So turn with me, please, to 1 Kings, chapter 13, where we have a remarkable verse. By the way, this prophecy is no good to show to non-Christians. I am assuming now I'm speaking today to people who are convinced that this is the inspired word of God. Next time I'll be dealing with prophecies that have fulfillment in history and that you can use to show that the Bible is correct and that our God is the only true God. But here's one that will satisfy us. In 1 Kings and chapter 13, we have a man here called Jeroboam. And Jeroboam, as you know, was the king of Israel, or the northern tribes. And this, pro- this passage of scripture is written about 950 BC. And Jeroboam has just set up an idolatrous altar to the god Baal. And a man of God comes out. Now let's read it. This is 1 Kings 13. And behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Here is the rock altar that Jeroboam's got. He's about now to worship to the golden calf that he'd set up. And the man of God cried against the altar in the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, Behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name. Josiah by name. Now, I tell you, that is a man called Josiah. That is absolutely pinpoint accurate. Absolutely accurate. A a, a certain child's going to be born called Josiah. What were the dates of Josiah? Well, I'll tell you. Josiah came about 620 BC. 330 years after this prophecy was actually given. Jeroboam must have thought, Josiah, do I know anyone called Josiah? And he didn't know anyone named Josiah. Here is pinpoint accuracy. And notice what's going to happen, by the way. It doesn't just leave it and say, oh, a man's coming later on, you're going to find him a bit of a pain in the neck. It actually describes exactly what is going to go on and exactly what's going to happen. Let's read it. And upon thee, he's talking to the altar, upon you, you altar, shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee. The priests of Baal are going to be offered on you, he says. And men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. Do you see how accurate that is? That's either going to come to pass or it's not going to come to pass. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord hath spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. For the sake of our own peace of mind. Let's see where that was fulfilled in Scripture, shall we? Turn with me to 2 Kings 23. 2 Kings 23. Verse 15. Now, in the passage of Scripture that we've actually gone through in turning to this passage, we are now up to King Josiah. Here he is, Josiah. And here is the fulfillment. Verse 15, moreover, the altar that was at Bethel 
And the high place which Jeroboam the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, had made, both that altar and the high place, he brake down and burned the high place and stamped it small to powder and burned the grove. Verse 16. And as Josiah turned himself, he spied the sepulchres that were there in the mount and sent and took the bones out of the sepulchres and burned them upon the altar. Was that prophesied? It was. Did it come to pass? It did. Bones were burned on the altar and polluted it, he says, according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. Let's just read on. Then he said, what title is that that I see? And the men of the city told him, it is the sepulcher of the man of God, which came from Judah and proclaimed these things that thou hast done against the altar of Bethel. Do you see how significant that is? They point to the tomb of the prophet who prophesied the things. In other words, they knew they had the scripture up to that point. And they said, but Josiah, this has all been prophesied. (coughs) Yeah, he's buried in there. The man who said that you'd do this is buried in there. Verse 18. Josiah said, let him alone. Let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet that came out of Samaria. And all the houses also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel have made to provoke the law to anger, Josiah took away and did to them according to all the acts that he had done in Bethel. Verse 20, And he slew all the priests of the high altars that were there upon the altars and burned men's bones upon them and returned to Jerusalem. The Bible is pinpoint accurate. The Bible names him and says exactly what's going to happen. Let's see another place, Isaiah and chapter 44. And the Bible critics have had a great time with this one, may I say. Isaiah and chapter 24. And we'll go right to the end to verse 28. Verse 28. Isaiah 44, verse... Oh, I'm sorry. Isaiah 44, verse 28. And here we have the name again of the man who's coming. This is in 740 B.C. 740 B.C. And the name of the man who's coming is Cyrus. C-Y-R-U-S. And here's exactly what's going to happen. When did Cyrus come, by the way? It was 538 BC. Here is Isaiah talking about Cyrus, who was coming. Verse 28. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. And what did Cyrus do? He came along, it's all in the book of Daniel. He gave the order, let let Jerusalem be built. Let the temple foundation actually be laid. Praise God. Now do you see, it's absolutely accurate in every detail. The third point is, you remember that we've seen, A, there is no overall plan in false prophecies. B, they are are usually very general and non-specific. And the third point that we come to is this. Where they are specific, they haven't come to pass. Some have, of course, but most haven't. So number C, number C, we've had A and B, where 
they are specific. They haven't all come to pass. Occasionally, they would give a specific prophecy, and it would come to pass. Now, I'll be giving you an example of one of those in a minute or two's time. But generally, where they are specific, they have not come to pass in all their details. So the false prophecies are normally so general that they can be taken anyway. Where they are specific, they're not entirely accurate. All right, now let's, let's actually have a look at, at that. There have been times when these false prophets have given pinpoint accuracy. For example, Gene Dixon actually prophesied, and correctly, the assassination of President Kennedy. She actually said President Kennedy will be assassinated, and he was assassinated. The trouble is that just a little time after that, she then prophesied the result of the next election in America and got it totally wrong. You see, they've only got two main parties. You're either right or you're wrong. In other words, she had a 50% chance of being 100% accurate again, and she failed. She was 100% inaccurate as far as that was concerned. So there's an example where there is pinpoint accuracy, and yet... Um, uh, it not, is not consistent. She got one right, then she got the next one wrong. And if you look at Jean Dixon, you'll find the percentage of prophecies she's given that have come absolutely accurately correct is minute. Another one I could give you, by the way, is Mother Shipton. Mother Shipton said, in 1896, now that's pinpoint accuracy, build your homes of rotten sticks. Rhymes nicely. In other words, there was going to be such a catastrophe, don't bother to build secure homes. Well, I'm so glad for you people who live in late Victorian houses that they weren't built of rotten sticks. Perhaps your house was, actually. You, you don't know. But uh, there was something she was prophesying which did not come to pass at all. Now, there are the three points of difference. Bible prophecy is always absolutely accurate. Where it is accurate, it's fulfilled in total accuracy, and it always forms a lovely master plan. Praise God. However, we still have a problem. For if one prophecy is given by these people that is fulfilled, we've still got to understand how it has been fulfilled anyway. And so I'm not sidestepping the issue. So, I want to ask this question. Okay, but Jean Dixon did prophesy about the death and assassina the assassination of President Kennedy. If she did, how do we cope with that as Bible believers? And the answer is we cope with it by seeing where the prophecy could have come from. And I suggest to you there are only two areas where a false prophecy can come from, even if the false prophecy comes true, and you'll understand what I mean in a moment. Here are the two places that one of these prophets can speak from. Number one, they will speak from the human mind, and I'll explain what I mean in a moment. Uh, number two, they are demonically inspired. Now, you've got those two possibilities. Mother Shipton, Nostradamus, and Jean Dixon either 
Either their prophecies came from a human mind, or they came directly from Satan, or through some demonic agency. Now, there are those two. Let's take the first, the human mind. By the human mind, I either mean guesswork, it's not likely, but it is a possibility, or I mean something that a lot of people do. I either am talking about pure guesswork, or I'm talking about reasoned prediction. So, we would have A, guesswork, B, reasoned prediction. And many people make reasoned predictions, not just people who are prophets. Do you know, in 1850, there was a man called Maxwell who made a prophecy. Do you know what he prophesied? He said, I'll tell you, he said, within 50 years, men will be sending radio waves through the air. Within 50 years, they'll be doing it. Now, what would you say? Oh, he's a prophet. He would have laughed at you if you'd said that. What was he? He was a mathematician. All he'd done, he worked out mathematically that it is possible to send radio waves between two points. All he lacked was the inventiveness to make a valve and one or two other things that he'd need. So he worked it out and he said, well, I reckon it's going to take about 50 years. And at the end of 50 years, I reckon we'll be able to do it. So he said, in, by 50 years' time, radio waves will be actually passing through the air. That's what he said. Now, he wasn't a prophet. He was a man who used reasoned prediction. He looked at the facts and he thought, yes, he said, I think I know the way things are going. He didn't name Marconi, you will notice. He didn't say in 50 years' time, Marconi will come along and there'll be radio waves. All right? Now, that's, that's reason prediction. Another example I would give you is uh, the example of George Orwell. George Orwell, in the 20s and early 30s, wrote a super book called 1984, in which he predicted what would happen in six years' time. The first time I read that, I was staggered at how close we are to what it actually says. Now, a prophet? No. He'd used reason. H.G. Wells did the same. Aldous Huxley in Brave New World did exactly the same. The problem, of course, with reason prediction is it can be wrong. <laughs> the great example that comes to my mind of that is just after Franklin Roosevelt died and they held a, an election in the States between two men, one called Dewey and the other called Truman. And everyone thought it was going to be a landslide for Dewey. They all thought Dewey's the next president. And some of the newspapers actually decided they were going to jump the gun and they printed head, headlines, massive landslide for Dewey. And they went on sale in the streets. Then two hours later, the result came through. Truman had won. And there were these newspaper proprietors, very red faces. They suddenly found they predicted the wrong one, you see. It fails. Why? The human mind, you see, has not got omniscience. Therefore, it can make mistakes. All right, there's the first. The second, I think, happens a lot more. Number two is they are demonically inspired. Now, let me get one thing clear. Satan is not omniscient, nor are demons. Some Christians act as if Satan is omniscient. He knows everything. I will tell you, Satan doesn't even know what you're going to do tomorrow. What Satan has got, however, and this is to his advantage, is he has a massive spy network all around the earth. 
And you may have discussed with your wife about where you're going to go tomorrow. And Satan has an ear trumpet in the room. And he heard what you were going to say. But Satan doesn't know whether you're actually going to do that. For example, you may suddenly change your mind tomorrow. You may be too tired. Satan has arranged a nice little plot over where you are to get you, and suddenly you're off somewhere else. We won't go to Brighton, we'll go to Portsmouth. And Satan is left. He didn't know you were going to go to Portsmouth instead. By the way, God did. Hallelujah. Isn't that wonderful? You see, that's what gives God the tremendous advantage as far as spiritual warfare is concerned. Satan can only guess where you are, but God knows where you will be. Praise God. And God also knows that Satan will try and attack you. Hallelujah. Now, isn't that marvelous? So we get demonically inspired prophecy, which cannot be 100% accurate, because Satan doesn't know. He can only guess. Over Gene Dixon, you see, Satan knew that the plot to assassinate Kennedy was in progress. He knew all the details. He knew the very day that they were deciding to do it. But it could have failed, in which case Gene Dixon would have been wrong. In that case, it didn't fail. But most of the others do fail, praise the Lord. And I think that God specifically and deliberately actually allows them to fail. Now, do you see, there is an example uh, in the human mind and demonically inspired prophecy where prophecies can be given, but where they cannot be, by any stretch of the imagination, 100% accurate. They cannot be, because Satan does not know. The hallmark of biblical prophecy is it's always true. The hallmark of a false prophet is occasionally it may be true, but generally it's always wrong. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Now, these are important principles. So, we come along and we say, okay, does the Bible give us any rules by which we can know whether a prophet is from God or not. And I would say this to you. We have got to know in these days who are the correct prophets and who are not correct prophets. And it's extremely difficult. One of the lovely things about having eldership, by the way, is that they're sheepdogs. Sheep look with the eyes, but a sheepdog smells. And a wolf can sometimes be covered with the sheep's clothing. And to other sheep, it looks like a sheep. To a sheepdog, it sm- still smells like a dog. Praise God. And we've really got to be on our watch, for deceivers are going to come, and they are going to be in this area and in this country. And I tell you now before it comes to pass, so that we can be warned. How do we know whether someone is a true or false prophet? Well, the Bible gives us two rules. And these rules have got to be used together. The first rule is found in Deuteronomy in chapter 18. So could you turn with me, please, to Deuteronomy and chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. And I repeat again, you cannot take one of these rules only. You've got to have them both. Deuteronomy 18 and verse 22. When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, here he is, he's claiming to be a Bible teacher, and he's claiming to be one of the Lord's folk. If the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken. Hallelujah. 
Praise the Lord. But the prophet had spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. And in the days of the Levitical law, it was a capital offense. You don't be afraid of him. You take him outside and you put him to death. That's what they were actually told to do. Now, this says that if a false prophet comes to town, you can always tell because he will say things that do not come to pass. This does not say that he actually is always wrong. It says that he will say things, he'll sooner or later give himself away. With most false prophets, you've only got to listen to two prophecies. One may be correct, but the second one's wrong, you know he's a false prophet. Praise God. A true prophet always, always, always has his word coming to pass. A false prophet occasionally does, but, some, but mostly doesn't. So the first rule is, a false prophet says things that do not come to pass. The next rule, rule two, is found in Deuteronomy in chapter 13. Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13 and chapter, uh, and verse 1 to verse 5. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and giveth thee a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder come to pass, now here you've got a false prophet who says something and it actually comes to pass. Does that make him a prophet of God? No, it does not. How can you tell? It's as if Jean Dixon came to town with religious views and she said, oh, by the way, here are my religious views. What, you don't believe me? Well, I'll prove it. Tomorrow at lunchtime, and she prophesies an event that will happen in Chichester, and it happens. Does that mean that she's a prophetess of God? No, it doesn't. The first rule says, well, perhaps she might be, perhaps she won't. The second rule says she's not. Now, verse 2 again. And the thing and the sign or the wonder... Come to pass, whereof he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known. Let us serve them. Thou shalt not hearken unto the word of the prophet, nor that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God proveth you to know whether ye love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And verse 5, And that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he hath spoken to turn you away from the Lord your God which brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so it goes on. And here is the main point as far as we're concerned. If a prophet comes to town, even though he's healing people left, right and center, even though demons apparently are screaming out of the people he is ministering to, to, to if he is saying things that are contrary to the word of God and contrary to the revelation that we know. He is a false prophet. Now, I want to say this. We live in a very dangerous time. For today, men are turning to signs and wonders and away from the word of God. As soon as you do that, you are trusting a broken reed, for a man's ministry does not prove anything about him. We live in a day when there is a rise of spiritualist healers who are achieving fantastic results. I have found that counselling people who have been to these folk are the hardest people to speak to, because all they know is, well, I did have cancer and I haven't now got cancer. And I went to that spiritualist healer. 
We are on difficult ground as far as people are concerned because our duty is to say, I'm sorry. He is out of line with the word of God. Does that man's ministry lead you to a saving knowledge of Jesus? No, it does not. Well, he's off base. Does it lead you to revere the Father more? No, it doesn't. Well, he's off base. And we must see this. False prophets are those who speak doctrine contrary to the revealed word of God. And this is what Moses was saying. Listen, he said, you're going to have people in your midst and they'll do marvelous things. But they're off base. And he knew what he was talking about. Don't forget, when he did early miracles in front of Pharaoh, the magicians of Pharaoh have repeated the miracles. You see that? Satan's got some power. That's what we've got to realize. And these people are the very devil himself to deal with. And we are going to find that even people in the church, and I think the charismatic movement is more open to this than any other movement, are going to be misled by people just because the people are healers or just because the people have tremendous miracle power. It is time that we've really got our foundations firm again and anchored ourselves again in the word of God. That's what this is saying. And right through history, great men, apparently, were raised up by Satan to try and lead the children of Israel astray. Every time the prophets knew they were out. Every time the prophets of God knew they were false, because it contradicted the word of truth. May I show you Jeremiah? I believe I'm turning into a Jeremiah as I'm speaking. Hallelujah. Wailing about the state of the church at the moment. Let's have a look at Jeremiah and see the agony that that man actually went through. Jeremiah. And we'll turn to chapter 28. Jeremiah 28. In chapter 27, Jeremiah had put a yoke over his shoulders, a wooden beam across, and he was saying to everyone, listen, he said, you are going into captivity if you carry on this way. At this time, the children of Israel were actually in the fourth cycle of discipline. If you don't know what I'm talking about, get the tape on the five cycles of discipline. They were in the fourth cycle of discipline. In other words, the king of Babylon was controlling them, but they were still in the land. And Jeremiah says, if you continue the idolatry the way you're going, I'll tell you, it's going to get worse. And the fifth cycle is coming. And the fifth cycle will be when you are removed from the land and you'll be taken into a foreign land. And it's coming. There's only one way. You've got to repent. You've got to repent. You've got to repent. And actually his ministry was, look, Israel, we've deserved this. So let's give in to the king of Babylon, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, they didn't like that. They accused him of treason. He was speaking the words of God, but it wasn't popular. He was put in dungeons, in prisons. He was terribly treated because he was standing fast for the principles that he knew were in Leviticus chapter 26. And of course, as soon as you get a Jeremiah, you get one of the glad boys coming along, a false prophet, who starts saying what the people want to hear. The Bible describes this as the state in the last days. Itching ears, it says. Even the church will have people in it, itching ears, heaping up teachers to teach them the things that they want to hear rather than the things that they ought to hear. You see? And one comes along. His name, Hananiah. You see? Lovely, lovely name. Our our God is gracious, it means. What a wonderful name. And in chapter 28, we see 
this battle of wits between these two. Remember Jeremiah's walking in, his head's down, and he's got a yoke over his shoulder. Right? And here's Hananiah. And this is chapter 28, verse 1. And it came to pass the same year, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year and in the fifth month, that Hananiah, the son of Azor, the prophet, which was of Gibeon, spake unto me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests, and of all the people, saying, and you can you imagine the scene? Everyone's hushed, and Hananiah walks forward. Jeremiah must have thought, here we go again, he's going to accuse me of something else. What does he say? Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. All the people said, oh, isn't that marvelous? Isn't that wonderful? That's just what we wanted to hear. And off they went to their groves, and off they went to their high places, and offered thanksgiving gifts to their gods. And meanwhile, God was getting more and more angry as they turned away from him. Verse 3, within two full years will I bring again into this place all the vessels of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried them to Babylon. I will bring Jeconiah back. Jeconiah had been taken away into Babylon. I'll bring him back. It's all going to be restored, says Hananiah. I think the people applauded, clapped at this point. It's exactly what they wanted to hear. Was it in line with the word of God? It was not in line with the word of God. Leviticus 26 was very clear. Oh, but they wanted to hear this. And here is their popular prophet, Hananiah. And there is Jeremiah, head down on the yoke on his shoulders. Verse 5. Then the prophet Jeremiah said unto the prophet Hananiah, in the presence of the priest and in the presence of all the people that stood in the house of the Lord. And Jeremiah says, I wish it were true. He says, Amen, he says, the Lord do so. The Lord perform thy words which thou hast prophesied to bring again the vessels of the Lord's house and all that is carried away captive from Babylon into this place. Nevertheless, he says, Oh, I wish it were true, but I'm telling you, you're wrong and you're a false prophet. Nevertheless, he says, Hear now this word that I speak in thine ears and in the ears of all the people, the prophets that have been before me and before thee of old prophesied both against many countries and against great kingdoms of war and of evil and of pestilence. The prophet which prophesied of peace, when the word of the prophet shall come to pass, then shall the prophet be known that the Lord hath truly sent him. All right, that, in other words, he says, listen, he says, if it comes to pass, Hananiah, they'll know you're real. But it's not going to come to pass. Hananiah doesn't stop. Do you know what Hananiah does? He takes the yoke from Jeremiah's shoulders and he breaks it over his leg. And he says, that's what I'm going to do the, to the yoke that the king of Babylon has tried to put on you. And do you know what happens? God tells Jer Jeremiah, Jeremiah, he says, okay, you've had a wooden yoke on your shoulders. You go and you make an iron yoke and you put it on. And let's see Hananiah break that. That's what he says. If we go down to verse 14. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron upon the necks of all these nations, that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him, and I have given him the beasts of the field also. And to end that particular prophecy, God also tells Jeremiah, tell all the people, Hananiah will be dead this year. And Hananiah died, according to the word through Jeremiah. Do you know the sad end of that? The people didn't listen to Jeremiah. 
And they were taken into captivity into the land of Babylon. And in Lamentations 2.17, it's a tragic book, Lamentations. It's what the people said as they were carried into captivity. And they were walking through the desert. And what did they say? Jeremiah sitting on the hillside listening to them. And they say, the Lord has determined what shall come to pass. And his word has been fulfilled. Jeremiah was the prophet of the Lord. Now let me tell you this. Already we see the beginnings of the people crying, peace, peace, peace on every hand. We've got them in the church. And we haven't seen anything yet. For I will tell you, let me prophesy. Hallelujah. You see whether this doesn't come to pass. We are going to see in our day people doing such miracles as we have never seen before. And these people, Jesus said, would do miracles and they deceive many. And if it were possible, and it's not, you remember that's an if number two, if it were possible and it's not, they would deceive the very elect. We are going to see our own brothers and sisters temporarily taken in by these miracle workers. There'll be men calling fire from heaven. There'll be men doing astounding miracles. And they'll receive a huge flock of people, most of whom are unregenerate, but many of whom are in our ranks today. We have got to stand firm on the word of God. We see them already. How many funerals have you been to where the person who is dead is a rank unbeliever? And instead of the man standing up and saying, look, I'll tell you, this man never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is now awaiting the resurrection of judgment and he will be thrown into the lake of fire. And the same is going to happen to you unless you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. How many, how many funerals have you been to like that? What do they say? This man lived a good life. Now awaits a crown in heaven. That is the type of word that they say. Shouting, peace, peace, and sudden destruction shall come upon them. I will tell you this. We have got to be careful. The rules are, a prophet from God, what he says, always comes to pass. And secondly, he always lead, leads us to a deeper revelation of the truth about the Lord. Let me just end, after that warning, in the book of 2 Timothy. And turn with me, please, to 2 Timothy and chapter 3. And here is your answer to the people who say that the earth is going to get better and better and better, and it's going to become Christianized. And soon all these non-Christians are going to come running to us, apparently, to find out how we do things. It's a lie and it's false. It's the beginnings of false prophecy and false prophets. Here is what Paul says. Verse 13, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. His answer, verse 14, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learnt and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And in chapter 4, Verse 2, let this not be true of any of us. Verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. I will tell you, 
That is not my ministry. And I and we as a fellowship will stand firm on the word of truth and we shall find that the false prophets will not find us very good bedfellows. God bless you. Amen.